Welcome to the Emotional Coach Podcast with me, Andrea Splendori. And today my guest is Dr. David Clive Price. David is a, the author of a, a number of books, including Bamboo Strong, The Age of Pluralism, and his latest, Hidden Demons, How to Overcome Fear, Anxiety, and Addiction to Thrive in Crisis. In this conversation, we talk about coaching, mental health, emotional intelligence, but also LGBTQ and the importance of an all-inclusive world. You can find more episodes on andreasplendori.com or wherever you get your podcast. Please subscribe, share and review. It's the only way podcasts like this have a chance to survive. The title tune is Pressure by Nevada. Okay, we'll get started if, once, if you're ready. I have a couple of questions and then I'll let you do all the talking because it's about you, really. I'm, I'm you're going to keep the video. Are you going to keep the video on or should we keep it on? It's nice. It's nice to see each other. A little bit closer to reality. <laughs> True. Okay, so I'm uh, talking to Dr. David Clive Price. And uh, thanks a million for your time, David. And I heard a couple of interviews you did in the past. And one thing I want to start with, if that's okay with you is um, I'm just curious about the transition from um, college Cambridge graduates to Renaissance studies and growing your own grapes and oil in, in Italy. Me being Italian, we yeah, heard yeah, all about uh, you English coming over and taking our... <laughs> so right. tell me a bit about all of that, please. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, inviting me and it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, Andrea. Um, the transition was like, I was always fascinated by history and Renaissance history in particular. And first of all, English Renaissance history. So I studied like Elizabeth I, the courts and uh, the private households of uh, Elizabethan England and music, because I was a choral scholar at Cambridge. So I, I love music um, and was fascinated by those musicians at that period. Um, and I did my PhD, in fact, at Cambridge on exactly that subject. So uh, part of all that study was also a passion for Italy because of course it, the Italian music uh, very much influenced uh, English uh, music at the time. And uh, the grand tours of the courtiers and the big households of, 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 the, of England who, who went over to Italy on the grand tour. So I'd always be fascinated by this aspect. Um, and I took the opportunity when I finished my PhD, book was published by Cambridge Press. So the I, I managed to get a British Academy Fellowship then to, to go over to, to Bologna and uh, study at the uh, University of Bologna to give lectures and research the Northern Italian courts. So there's a whole kind of yeah connection of uh, of Renaissance uh, history and Italy and uh, my love of that. So the next step from that was I didn't think that I was going to be an academic. So together with my first partner, who was Swiss as it happened, uh, we bought a little farmhouse in uh, Toscana in a in a hilltop town called Volterra, uh, and there. Uh, we farmed wine and olives, at least me full time. He was running a film festival in, in Switzerland, but me full time. 
and I wrote my first books there. I translated Pasolini's Ascent of India there. Um, I actually wrote my first novel there when I, I with a side excursion to New York to re research it. So, yeah, that was all my Italian connection, which lasted on and off for about six years. So I had a really strong Italian connection. And just before I'll, I'll go forward from there, I just I'm always curious where all of that comes from. Where, you know, if you throw back your, to going into Cambridge, where did that come from? Was it from your parents? Was it from where you grew up? Where, where was that love of, you know, where did it come from? Of study. Of study but, and, you know, obviously there's yeah. a curiosity there that, you know, not everybody gets up yeah. in the morning and goes, I want to know more about, you know, Renaissance. Music. <laughs> <laughs> Although we are pretty geared to Elizabeth I in the, the UK, you know, and all, all to do with Elizabethiana. But anyway, yeah, I guess it was like, um, well, you know, my, my background was, my, my parents came from basically a coal mining community in Wales, my father at least, and my mother's parents are publicans, and um, they escaped from Wales, as it were, um, and brought us to, to uh, London when we were young. Um, so I guess there was an element of, I want to get I want to improve myself. My father certainly wanted me to improve myself, and I want to improve myself. So, uh, you know, I sang in the school choir, I acted, and then got this scholarship to Cambridge, and then I sang in the St. John's College Choir. Again, music. So it's all kind of coming together in a, in a wave of interest in what started off in Italy, but then turned into a wave of interest in other cultures because I got really curious and really enjoyed exploring other cultures. I went over to Asia Pacific and, and uh, based myself in Hong Kong and wrote some travel books about different countries in Asia. Um, so it was a step-by-step -step process really into different cultures and uh, mindsets. Curiosity, I think that's the, the big one. Absolutely. And we, we always hear, and I, I'm the first to say that, you know, traveling broadens your mind and expands your mind and I've done traveling myself, but your, your old work piece now for the last number of years, and one of your books is The Age of Pluralism and yes. different culture and different movement of people. And just... If you, if you could explain to me the, 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 the age of pluralism and where that came from, and then I want to ask you about the transition from, um, from colleges to leadership, okay? So if you can just tell me a bit about the age of pluralism and why you wrote that book, why you thought there was a need for something like that. Well, actually, it's built on my previous book, Bamboo Strong, which okay. is uh, Cultural Intelligence Secrets to Succeed in a New Global Economy. And that took as its basis the cultural intelligence model, which is, you know, for relating to working together with people of many different backgrounds and cultures, generations and personal differences. So I then, I then took that in the age of pluralism, I took that one step further in creating a framework um, of my own for, for um, exploring uh, other cultures and backgrounds. Uh, with the, with, and the age of pluralism title came from this aspect of globalization, which means that pretty much 
every company is a multicultural company. Every team, actually, doesn't have to be international. Every team is more or less a multicultural team. So we're dealing with difference practically in every aspect of our lives. But what I wanted to do was uh, create a framework for, for handling differences and for uh, relating better to other people, for listening, observing, being curious, um, all those things that I've been trying to do myself in going out to Italy and then to, to different uh, parts of Asia Pacific, working and living there. Uh, Asia plural, pluralism is, is a fact of our times. However, and as hyper-connected as we are, is a fact of our times. You know, however much the current crisis has, uh, in a sense, closed us down, um, we're still enormously connected. Um, so that's what I wanted to talk about in this book. Just, I, I have to be honest, I didn't know about cultural intelligence until I heard a couple of the interviews you did in the, in, in, in the past. So I'm completely ignorant about cultural intelligence, and I believe it, it does date back a few years. Can you tell me a bit more about it? Yeah, it dates back to like the 1990s. Um, uh, the research made by the uh, Nanyang University in Singapore and the Cultural Intelligence Center in Michigan in the States, uh, headed by David Livermore. And he, they created this uh, CQ model based on research in 72 countries around the world. Um, basically about, um, well, it's, I use Bamboo Strong as the, as the image. It's basically about uh, emotional flexibility, um, cultural flexibility. Um, having more than one perspective at one time, which is kind of anathema at the moment because of social media, we tend to have only one perspective and we hammer it home. But in fact, um, what the CQ model is all about is agility and uh, being able to relate to others um, in different, uh, you know, in different backgrounds. Um, and to have this essential um, holding, nuance really holding more than one perspective in mind at the same time uh, constantly which is you know leadership that's what leaders require um, for moving forward not only with their own teams but their own visions um, to have this kind of agility and, and and so that brings me back to the Again, when I heard you talking about the importance of traveling, and not only traveling on your two weeks holiday, but to immerse yourself in a culture, I, I think you used the word become adopted by the culture, you know, so we yeah, yeah. become part of it, which, which, you know, it's a great way to say, like, you know, you arrive in Asia Pacific, you might have never tried the food there or whatever, but you become part of it, you have to become part to be appreciated. Yes. And that expands your horizons. And yes. And that you really understand the culture, um, but and you, yeah, sorry, and and then you have this essential um, capability um, of being able to adapt, empathize with people of all kinds of different uh, mindsets and ways of doing things. I got myself adapt, adopted in uh, in Hong Kong. I lived in the public housing estate with my current partner which was 30, 34 years ago. So, 
yeah, it, I, and I lived, uh, I always got myself adopted. I lived on a, a little hut on the Iro river Irrawaddy in Burma uh, with my travel guide. Um, everywhere I went, I tried to get, I lived with uh, the uh, puppeteers in Mandalay and their school, and I gave English classes, but I was adopted, right? Um, as, you know, David, the, the English teacher, David, the, the English writer, that's the, the writer, yeah. Like in it Italy, I was in professore, which always made, made me laugh because there in the middle of the country, what possible use can a professore be? <laughs> but I was, oh, all the contadini, all the uh, local uh, workers, farmers called me il professore. So it's just aspects of cultural adaptation. Yeah, which is very important in, in any aspects of life, but obviously very important in work environment and leadership environment where if you're in Asia and whatever the cultural and religious aspects of that particular area you're in, you need to respect, you need to understand. And the same in Italy, if there's a, you know, used to be between two and four people didn't go out in the summer because it was too hot and you need to keep it quiet. You need to respect different yes. aspects. And that's all very well. And I understand all of that. What I want to understand is we are, uh, and I could be completely wrong and I'm asking you, so we are, um, we are training our new leaders, our future leaders through a system, a school system and a, a college system that is not really designed to go off and explore the world. Mm -hmm. Am yes. I correct? So then by the time the college kid now that's 25 and he's got a PhD, whatever, he's the new leader, and it, it runs a company that is multi, yeah. multicultural. He or she has never really been anywhere, but has got it all from the books. So how do you, how do you yeah. teach that? Yeah, it's a very good question because emotional intelligence is not something that's easily taught. And as you rightly say, it's not something that's, that's regularly taught at all. We, we teach uh, systems, we teach um, intellectual things, we teach, uh, projects, um, whatever, we, we, they're all um, systems and processes and, and PhDs and doctors of science and etc. So what we're not teaching is emotional intelligence. And I would have thought that is one of the first things that we should be teaching. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go off to every culture in the world, every country in the world. But that essential capability, which I call the muscle of the mind, is something that needs to be exercised. Otherwise, it atrophies, it dries up. It's uh, right. So you need to be exercising it. And it may be that you're exercising it within your own company or with uh, your network of uh, organizations, um, that you're discovering it through that. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be going off to explore but you have to be aware at least of this uh of this uh, need to 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 put yourself in other people's positions and that comes back to also for leaders being able to share their vulnerabilities um which is another aspect of emotional intelligence which actually number is number one for cultural intelligence because you're going off and saying you know take me off to the housing estate, I'm suddenly going to be, you know, knowing how to bow to the gods at the end of the day and light the incense at the, at the little shrine in the corner of the room. I know what the red packets are for 
for lucky money, etc., etc. You're picking all this up. Um, so, but it's vulnerability. You just follow what other people are doing, right? Up to a certain extent, especially when you first go into a different uh, situation. So leadership is a lot to do with uh, cultural intelligence, actually. Um, and the best leaders are those who can empathize with uh, the people that they have uh, within their teams that are not necessarily exactly like them. And they haven't appointed necessarily to be exactly like them. Uh, that means, you know, an emotionally intelligent leader, basically. They're the strong ones. They're the, they're the bamboo strong ones. Yeah, and I love the, I love the analogy of the bamboo strong ones. I, I, I love bamboo and, uh, and uh, I love the way it grows so fast and it's so strong and yet it's so flexible. Yeah. And that's obviously the, 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 the analogy uh, that you're using. And in your work uh, now, you know, obviously you're not just a writer, you do a lot of coaching, you do a lot of executive coaching and leadership coaching. How, how are the leaders of today adapting to that? Are they actually, the guy sitting on the, or the girl sitting on the top of the pile, you know, with the CEO name on or a CEO or whatever, how is she taking to something like that to be flexible in, in the way you mean being flexible? I think necessity, uh, is the mother of invention here because uh, in this current crisis in particular we've seen that uncertainty is a is a inherent in everything that we do uh, and this crisis has brought it out in spades but um, a constant need to be agile to be revising the plan um, I think that's another big one revising the plan um, comparing the evidence, um, asking for help. These are all aspects of modern leadership that the CEOs and uh, senior executives uh, are finding that they need more and more rather than less and less. And it's not something that can easily be delegated. It's something that they have to get up to speed on. Um, and the rapidity with which uh, companies had to move more recently only is, a, is is a, a dramatic example of that. And taking aside even the COVID, but even prior to COVID, do you see evidence of that flexibility, that strong flexibility that really, I mean, we're obviously talking about human, you're looking about people one-on-one -on -one at the end of the day, but within an organization, you're talking about cultural intelligence to try to have it through the organization. I'm assuming that's the idea of to, to make sure everybody buys into it, that we're all the same. And yeah, you might be doing your, you know, your Ramadan for the month because that's what happens, mm. you know, in your religion. And then you might be doing, you might be having cappuccinos in 10 o'clock in the morning, every morning because you're Italian and, <laughs> uh, and you need to accept all of that. So uh, how, how are companies buying into all of that? Are they buying into it at the moment? I don't think it's the top of their priorities at the moment, um, but it's likely to be increasingly, you know, a priority because particularly the emotional intelligence part of it, the quotient, um, is is going to be really essential as we move forward. It's not necessarily all the aspects of cultural intelligence, although 
as I said, every team now is multicultural, or shall we say, multi-differential. Um, you know, there are differences, many differences within teams. Um, we are all mixed together in this age of pluralism. So the emotional intelligence aspect is going to be increasingly important and it, it is not being rolled out, at least not in the current crisis, uh, at anything like uh, the rate that it should be. Um, and it's something that, uh, you know, companies have to, to, to stand up and recognize. Leaders have to stand up and recognize. And some of them are doing it, but not, not a majority. Um, maybe when the aspects of this crisis become clearer and they see the way through, then the kind of compassion, empathy, um, relativity, looking at, at uh, things from uh, many different viewpoints, etc., being able to respond with agility, maybe these will come to the fore as the ways of the future, because they, they certainly uh, will need to be. Which brings me to it. You have another book called Hidden Demons. Yes. That, that's your latest book, and the, the subtitle is How to Overcome Fear, Anxiety, and Addiction and to Thrive in Times of Crisis. And I'm assuming just what we've been talking about, you're talking about vulnerability and, and opening up. That's very much... That was pretty much your journey, wasn't it, in, in, with that book? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've written 15 leadership and personal improvement and fiction books. And as you say, I've created my own coaching business, teaching professionals, executives, and business owners how to transform their mental health challenges uh, into a fulfilled lifestyle and a business that impacts millions of people worldwide. But it wasn't always like that. I learned from my own experience with depression and anxiety and alcohol and not feeling good enough too, despite the outward signs of success, that coming back from setbacks and black holes is tough, but it's possible. And not with quick fixes, uh, but with perseverance and a step-by-step -step route away from fear and anxiety for having a fulfilled life and successful business. So you can find the real you within your hidden demons, hence the name of the book, rather than trying to be someone others think that you should be. And you too can find the resilience to bounce back from adversity and life's challenges. So throughout the chapters of this, my hidden demons book, I intersperse six life strategies um, based on the real you, not on the person that others think that you, sh you should be. And each of these six life strategies takes an aspect of the recovery process and illustrates it in some detail. So with these six life strategies as guidance, you become, can become, you can overcome the obstacles that you stand in your path and uh, to which we often have recourse. So you can stop being a victim of circumstances or being held back by others. Whatever, whatever rational stories we tell ourselves to, present, to prevent ourselves from moving forward. So that's the essential core of uh, hidden demons. And 
the subtitle is How to Overcome Fear, Anxiety and Addictions to Thrive in Uncertain Times. Um, and in one of the things you, you, you mentioned in, in your, um, your meetup pack as well, it, and it's something interesting because you talk about it in, in, the text, in the context of coaching as well, is the, the LGBTQ. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you're a gay man, am I correct? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case I, I misread it. <laughs> a bit of a faux pas. If I wasn't, and I'm, uh, I'm an out gay man since I was 16. Which? Ish. Which, yeah. without giving away your age, that wasn't yesterday or the day before. It was a few years ago. <laughs> yeah. But a few years ago, uh, it wasn't easy to come out as a gay man, I'm sure. And but what I'm interested in, in your, in your work now, when you're when you meeting clients in a workplace, and I know you mentioned, you talked about uh, we're all the same. We, we, you know, there's a multi-pluralism uh, pluralism in, in all different aspects, whether it's religious or cultural, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, the, the sexual tendency are the same, you know, it's part of all of that, whatever, whatever you're, what is that like in, in an organization? How is it, is it seen within an organization? Is it easy? Is it? Again, emotional intelligence, number yeah. one. Yeah. Um, I was at, uh, well, I won't name the uh, financial organization, but at one of the world's leading banks, I was the chief speech writer in Hong Kong. And uh, I was there for four to five years, and uh, I, it was clear to all, certainly to my Chinese friends, but I think to most of the what they call the guilers, the foreigners, the devil people, um, that uh, that I was a that I was a gay man, and it was neither here nor there because I didn't talk about it, um, and probably that is an aspect of discretion which would be different these days. It's certainly in some organizations, you wouldn't naturally mention it. I naturally mentioned it to friends, or I naturally talked a little bit about it. My, my other half came to collect me from work, like the other halves of uh, many of the executives. Um, so yeah, I was kind of like emotionally intelligent uh, in a organization that didn't really need to be reminded of that they just you know i i wasn't exactly an out gay man in that sense um but yeah it is it is difficult i think there are different uh, there are different gradations of um of discretion and there are different gradations of being out and proud um many organizations now have very active um, LGBTQ organizations and diversity and inclusion policies. So, you know, the world has changed. I'm, I'm talking about Hong Kong in like uh, 1995. Um, and I came out to my parents in what, in 1967, which is the first moment that uh, homosexuality was decriminalized. Um, in the UK, um, partially decriminalized. So, uh, yeah, it was difficult then. It was like I lived in a slightly twilight zone in Cambridge. Um, but I eventually found another, my partner at that time, and uh, I came out to my parents then. 
Um, but uh, it's varying degrees of emotional intelligence. When is the right moment? When is, have you prepared the ground enough, which I certainly didn't do with my parents? Um, is it really necessary um, to speak about your sexual identity with all and sundry, etc.? So it's all kind of, I never found it a particular drawback, I have to say. Um, but then maybe I was lucky. Uh, it does give you a different viewpoint in the world, though. Yeah, and, and I like the way you talk about the, you know, we live in an inclusive world, whether it's religious, racial, gender, or whatever it is, we're all, yeah. we're all the same. We have a different way of expressing it, and, but that, that is what makes us a civilized society. Uh, yeah. But it, 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 it's great to say it, it's great to hear from you, but it, I, I just, I, I wonder, and I've seen, I've seen organizations doing the Pride Week and it's great. Uh, and I'm yeah. just wondering, and is it, is it, I'd love to know if, if, if you, from your point of view, if you see it just as a lip service, or as somebody said, you know, putting, putting the, the rainbow on, it, on the screen so that everybody's happy that week, but it, do they actually, do they actually impro, imp, implement what it needs to be an, an all-inclusive week? Well, does it need yeah. to be a week at all? Sorry, if it doesn't... Does it need to be the one week a year? The prior yeah, week I, know. Yeah, one yeah, I do. I agree with that. Why does it have to be a week or a month? But we're proud, right? Etc. So, yeah, uh, there is a certain element of lip service still. Um, but there's also um, encouraging progress. So, and some companies and organizations definitely do take it quite pretty seriously. Um, so there is a flourishing uh, diversity and inclusion uh, agenda and a flourishing LGBTQ agenda. So yeah, we should celebrate the steps that have been made and then look forward to the further steps that, that should be made. Um, and again, this all comes down to, to the emotional intelligence of, of the leaders. Um, so it's all coming back to the same thing. <laughs> Absolutely, and I, I wonder whether is um, is it a case that uh, as soon as we can show that that emotional intelligence from the leader will uh, make a difference to the, a new buzzword, the human capital within mm. the organization, or the, the bottom line, which unfortunately a lot of the organizations still just looking at the bottom line at the end of the day. I wonder is that the step that's going to be required to. For, for leaders to take on the emotional intelligence a lot more in, more seriously. Yeah, well, I mean, studies uh, by Harvard and by countless organizations, um, research shows that those organizations that foster uh, diversity um, and innovation, because diversity feeds into innovation very strongly, have a marked impact that has a marked impact on the bottom line we're, we're talking about um, real return on investment for uh, supporting the diversity of your workforce um, so it's not just a pie in the sky and it's not just a, a sort of thing that you ought to uh, make a gesture towards it really makes an enormous difference just as uh, uh, appreciation of pluralism and harnessing of pluralism makes an enormous difference to enterprise and to innovation. It's logical. Different mindsets must create um, 
you know, greater products, uh, much more groundbreaking um, uh, services, and have a real impact on the bottom line. And it's interesting at the moment uh, with the current pandemic and the way it's been dragging on for whatever, close to six months now. Yes. The, the studies are already showing that um, there is a, an increase in productivity, but a, a decrease in um, innovation and creativity within organization, which is you know, that, that human touch, that human contact, yes. the sharing of information. That human contact, yeah, yeah. Uh, teams in the workplace that are able to bounce off each other and their minds. Um, I think the Koreans had the answer. Um, can I read you a little bit from my, from my book uh, Please do, yeah. about, about uh, the Korean art of Nunji? Nunji. Yeah. I'm talking about the South Korea now. It, it's the art of intuiting what other people are thinking and learning, uh, how to anticipate the needs of others. It was introduced into Korea some 2,500 years ago, along with the teachings of Confucius. So South Koreans teach it to all school children, in addition to the academic curriculum, because they believe it is the key to personal and social fulfillment. Translated from the Korean, nunshi means eye measure. It's a technique of gauging other people's moods to create a sense of trust and bring fan friends, families, and colleagues closer together. Koreans have extremely high expectations of academic fulfillment, with two-thirds of children going to university and many pupils attending intensive after-school grammar courses. However, Nunji is taught before children even start school so that they will make friends more easily and have good relationships with their teachers. People with quick nunchi are able to pick up on the mood of a room, a partner, or a friend by reading their body language, intonations, and words. And it's considered a superpower for understanding other people's feelings and thoughts, which can be of huge advantage in life, from job interviews to marriage. In the West, however, we are living in an almost anti-nunchi age in which we measure success only by exam results, celebrity status, and perfect image. Many of our politicians' brains are set permanently to transmit rather than receive. We do not listen or reach out or use our emotional intelligence nearly enough. The result is that people shout at each other in some strange version of megaphone diplomacy across the airwaves and multimedia. They take up entrenched and ready-made positions. They operate on the basis of, not of communication, but of emotional blackmail and winning at all costs. People are unfriended, unliked, abused, and dismissed as soon as they express a view, often any view, with which the other person disagrees. The best remedy for this lack of emotional literacy and intelligence and nunchi deficit is to replace it with acts of kindness and genuine empathy. Those who are suffering from this climate of alienation and uncertainty deserve our compassion and above all, our practical support. All of us must relearn the art of Nunji 
all of us must develop our superpower of empathy. Very nice. And this is from the Your Hidden Demons? Yeah, this is what um, one of the final uh, sections of the book. And it, it, so, and that is your whole approach about self-leadership, am I correct? Yeah. Yes. Uh, which, again, it's, why, why are we not using it? Why are we not using in the Western world? Why? Because every time I, I've talked to somebody that is enlightened in whatever way we call it enlightened, it's, it's always going back to the Eastern philosophies that seem to have this yeah. nice slow pace, whether it's a Japanese tea ceremony or I never heard of Nunchi before, but sounds of, like a great way of learning uh, from an early age. Why do we not, as an, a Western society, do not yeah. take on things like that? It fascinated me because the uh, South Koreans are so intensively academic, uh, fixed on academic achievements at all costs. You know, crammers and kids have to stay until 10 o'clock at night to cram up and achieve, academic achievement is number one. And, you know, they're sent to universities all around the world as well, etc. And yet they're teaching their children, even before any of that, the art of Nunchi. Uh, which is to, you know, gauge other people's feelings. Um, I find that fascinating. And it really is kind of, as you say, it's a kind of lesson for our time, something that we could all be teaching our own children um, and university students, etc. There should be a Munshi course at the University of Oxford and Cambridge or any university. Um, Munshi studies. <laughs> But I mean, all of your whole um, idea of, well, not your idea, but your studying and your, your writing about pluralism and, uh, and multicultural cultural intelligence is even more relevant now, where up to very recently we could fly everywhere we wanted, whenever we wanted, but now we're, we're constantly talking to one another in yeah. everywhere. I could be talking to you and to an Australian and somebody. It doesn't matter. We can all talk to everybody all the time. And it's even yeah. more multi, uh, multicultural than ever before. So that's becoming even more interesting, what you're talking yeah. about. Yes, and it's fun. I think that's the great, the great thing I found throughout my life, is that uh, the more you empathize with and discover new viewpoints and listen to and stand back and be curious and wonder what the heck is going on here, the more fun it becomes. Um, and I think that's, a, that's an art or a science that can be, that can be learned um, even in organizations now, and especially amongst leaders. Um, it is actually it not only tangible benefits, but it makes life better, fuller, rounder, <laughs> more exciting, um, etc. Oh, absolutely. I, and I totally agree. Um, so tell me, who are your, who's, who's your, who are your customers, who are your clients, who come to seek your coaching services? You know, is there a, a particular person or type of person that is attracted to what well, you do? Given the circumstances with corporates at the moment, I'm doing less of uh, leadership development as such, um, but I'm doing more of uh, entrepreneurs, uh, and business owners, because uh, they're the ones in particular that need 
there's support of agility, rapid thinking, um, and they're dealing with uh, work teams that are often spread out um, and from many different backgrounds as well. So um, whether they're based in the UK or whether they're, they're international. So yeah, entrepreneurs that need to be very uh, uh, quick on their feet uh, mentally. Um, they're, they're the, the particular kind of uh, leaders that I'm talking with, achievers that I'm talking with. And how did you get, like obviously um, writing is, is your thing, writing is your passion. And uh, how did you come to the coaching world? What brought you to it? Well, I guess that um, the experience I had at the large financial uh, organization where I was uh, advisor really to the CEO and senior executives and chairman, um on different aspects of strategy particularly in asia that gave me then the, the springboard and idea for uh, taking my expertise uh, into um, coaching so first of all we're dealing with asian uh, entrepreneurs and leaders and then coming back to the uk and uh, setting up a global coaching business out of london so yeah, it's uh, been an interesting journey, and the more, uh, the more, in a sense, I put, uh, shall we say, I synergize the, the different aspects of my uh, my coaching or my experience into coaching frameworks. The more exciting it's become. So the, this latest one, I feel that I can reach out and help uh, as many people as possible in what is, after all, a more or less a global pandemic uh, that adds to the current pandemic. Um, of mental health um, and uh, the, the life challenges, depression, anxiety, stress, etc. So, it, 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 again, it's been like my explorations and travels. It's been incremental and uh, it seems to be leading in, in this direction very strongly. So it, it gave me great uh, excitement and pleasure to write the last book because uh, seem to bring together a lot of things that I felt and experienced and that I could bring real, uh, real perspective to. It's always something, so when, you, when you're coaching somebody, um, you'll be working with, sorry, you'll be working with a client for a number of sessions and then you get a testimonial, you get a phone call, you get an email, whatever to say, David, that was fantastic. You know, I got where I wanted to be, but with a book, you're writing it and it's out there and you wrote it with the best, the best intentions. What, what feedbacks are you getting feedbacks and what feedbacks are you getting? Uh, well, this current one has kind of come out in fits and starts. So first of all, it was going to be published in March. Then of course, with the pandemic, it was delayed until now July, but well, it was till July and then uh, the hardback wasn't ready, and then this and that, and the um, the ebook is still not ready. So the official launch now will be in later in September. Okay. So the one thing is, once you've got everything together, then you launch, right? Yeah. So I'm very glad that I didn't choose a launch date to make a kind of uh, launch uh, projection for a particular time in the middle of this uh, pandemic. And uh, have you more books in, 
in, in the making? Uh, yes, I, there's, there's a, a novel I want to write. Um, funnily enough, it's going to be set, I think it's going to be set. I haven't written a novel for ages. And, uh, you know, with all this uh, leadership and coaching, etc., etc., I, I haven't had time to think. But uh, it's still there within me, and I have mapped out some of it, and it's set in Volterra, um, where I started out in Italy. And it's... Uh, little bit to do with the Freemasons and you remember Pipiwe and uh, <coughs> and the landscape, particularly the landscape of uh, Toscana um, and the kind of visiting British couple um, and the discovery of etc etc. So <laughs> you know, the is a fantastic, uh, beautiful place, absolutely beautiful place. Great to write. I, I'm curious about that because um, Obviously, uh, I can just imagine you were saying you, you first you wrote the first books when you were living in, in Volterra, you know, in the farm. And yeah. I can just imagine, I know the area quite well. I can just imagine, you know, meeting in the morning, going by your groceries and getting all your ideas, etc. Now you're dealing with uh, daily angst and, uh, <laughs> and trying to turn it into a novel. But that's it. That's interesting. Yeah. Maybe it will be reflected in the novel as well. Yeah. Very yeah. good. Very good. So, Great. um, so David, I, I just, there's, there's quite a lot there that I'll I, I just say we were just mentioned when, when we started. Um, uh, the photograph behind me is the place where I grew up, which is called Ostia Antiga. I actually grew up in Ostia, which is where Pierpaolo Pasolini was murdered. Yeah. And Pierpaolo Pasolini is in the uh, is the cover of my social fabric podcast and you translated oh. the book which is a fantastic book i read it when i lived in india i read it in italian i think it's called profumo uh, uh, yeah it's an amazing book it's a little booklet but you translated that which is fantastic i might just uh, give it a go in english and see what it's like and uh, I can present you with a copy. I don't think it's still in print, but I can certainly. Of course, you need it in Italian, not in English. No, no, I would love to read it in English because I read it in Italian. I absolutely yeah. love the book. Yeah. Um, fantastic. But look, um, yeah, you've so much. There's so much material there for anybody who wants to have a look at what you do and how you do it. There's a davidcliveprice.com is where they find you. Yes, that's uh, the uh, kind of business uh, site davidcliveprice.com, but also for the book and for the coaching and speaking, then also hiddendemons.com. That is hidden-demons.com. Okay. So you'll find everything there. Yeah, because we created a method all around, the hidden demons method. Yes. The hidden demons your method. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Um, I think that's all I have for you tonight. Um, fascinating conversation. I learned yeah. a lot. I learned... Um, the Nunchi is definitely a great takeaway, and uh, I might even get the book and read it and see what it's all about. Yes. Um, yeah, we can all learn from Nunchi, I think. So it's been a real pleasure. Un vero piacere, um, Andrea, to speak with you today. And I learned a lot myself. So thank you for having me as a guest. Yeah, thanks, Emilia David, and have a great evening. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Got a counter on the cloud.